0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my brand new podcast, Beast, The Murder of Nora Sheehan, streaming now, wherever you get your podcasts. As the towers were being torn down, he was photographing them. And what resulted was a six-year project called Joyrider. It exhibited all over the world in Japan and everything. I mean, a superb photo essay of coming of age of these young guys in this concrete jungle. He was very connected to Ballymun. He really loved the place. He loved its people. He always felt they had stories to tell that were interesting to the wider world. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Photojournalist Ross McDonnell became a team member of Crime World when he filmed fly on the wall style during the recent Regency trial. A friend and a colleague, he was a three time Emmy Award winner by the time he passed away in recent weeks after going missing while swimming off New York. Today, Niall Donald and I remember his gentle nature, his ability to fit in and to find humour while under pressure. And we rebroadcast an interview he did with the show about his world-acclaimed work in Ballymun, a place and its people so close to his heart. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com.
2: Really sad news uh, Nicola we got obviously over last week um about Ross Macdonald, one of the Ireland's most renowned photographers, who obviously uh, we both knew, but you knew particularly well. He was Ross was with us a lot um over the summer during the Regency trial and got some great footage of us obviously coming out of the courts and uh, with, when Jerry Hutch walked out. Um but obviously the the you know a really, really tragic
1: and, and sad news from last week absolutely shocking he's been missing for a couple of weeks um since he he disappeared in new york it appears he went for a swim which was something that was he was very passionate about wild swimming when he wasn't trailing around filming you and i or feeding us because he was excellent at feeding people he was. um he was into his wild swimming and um anyway look a tragedy uh, there was some remains in a way at least it brings a little bit of closure um, and um, they've been confirmed as being Ross's so I think the family are probably preparing now to repatriate him and um, no doubt there'll be a funeral over the, yeah, funeral I mean, the he, coming weeks or so. I mean, he was... He's only 44 now, like, I mean, he's a lot younger than me anyway.
2: Particularly kind of a, a gentle-natured guy, like, obviously, Ross, and, and you would have known him well, but he he got himself in all sorts of Uh, dangerous situations in his working life, had absolutely fearless person, but uh, on a personal level, he was a gentle soul, I think it'd be fair to say.
1: Yeah, definitely. Everything was very chilled out with him. And, uh, you know, I'm writing for uh, the papers this weekend in relation to him, but I was just sort of remembering how many times he rattled up here in my house at seven o'clock in the morning to film me. Uh, And you know, I don't know what gentlemen are like, but ladies don't particularly like cameras in the faces <laughs> at that hour in the morning. But he somehow managed to just blend in and not concern me too much. And, uh, of course, he was filming for a couple of projects we were working on. And, yes, he was with us during the Regency. He was the guy who took the footage that we used in the last show. The, um, of, the, of the bodyguard. As, as Of he's the bodyguard. Becoming, yeah, I mean, that exactly. was all Ross's.
2: And he, he obviously captured us t- talking to the... the the bodyguard, the guy who 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 attached himself to Jerry Hutch as he walked out of court, but Ross captured us talking to him in advance yeah. of all that, and it would have probably been his way because Ross was, he was very soft and gentle natured, but also had a had a, an eye for a bit of wit didn't he in terms of he did
1: he yeah. did. I always remember he was he enjoyed so much the kind of as we looked into the distance, nodded and tried to sort of. I suppose, ignore him initially. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was a, a, a cool piece of video footage which he very kindly let us use in the show the last time. But look, Ross had a really extremely exciting or what appeared to be just such an exotic, adventurous life. He was in Afghanistan. He was in Ukraine. He worked with the, in cartel land as such with the Owen Grillo out in Mexico. They got themselves deeply embedded with some of those cartels. He went with people being smuggled from Honduras into the U.S. and traveled with them on a really dangerous journey. He won an Emmy for that, called "The Trade." He actually, in total, won three Emmys for his work, his cinematography. But he he also won the most recent one for his work. He was in the a hospital in the in New York, filming, and the very early days of COVID, as the hospitals were battling against this, you know, tide of death. And he had to don his hazmat suit and go in every day and film. And um of course, I suppose really, and you know, it's nice actually to have this pod, and we're going to play it after we, we're done talking. But I interviewed Ross in I think it was twenty one when he was back here in Ireland. He was always drawn home to Ireland and he always was trying to find stories here and he was always seeing change and he was always looking for new subjects and um of course he was working uh, alongside myself on Joey O'Callaghan, trying to bring that to the big stage or the big screen, rather, The Witness, which is how we actually connected in the first place. He read the book and he had himself a deep connection with Ballymun, where Joey O'Callaghan was from. And around the mid-2000s, when he was working as a photographer freelance, he basically went down to Ballymun one night, one Halloween night, with a camera and just started photographing these young guys and As the towers were being torn down, he was photographing them and photographing them. And what resulted was a six-year project called Joyrider. It exhibited all over the world in Japan and everything. I mean, a superb photo essay of coming of age of these young guys in this concrete jungle. He was very connected to Balimun. He really loved the place. He loved its people. He always felt they had stories to tell that were interesting to the wider world and, um, he was kind of coming back to tell one of those stories and film the story of Joey. So um,
2: I mean, like he was obviously hanging around with us. And, you know, we are what we are, but this is literally one of the most accomplished people in the world in this field. I mean, an absolutely humble, gentle guy to meet, but really one of, you know, really an incredible talent, you know, that Ireland has produced. And then obviously since his passing, you get the other side of it. You've probably even more, I know you've been in touch with all his friends, but even I've got loads of emails just, just about people talking also about him as a person, not just an yeah. accomplished, you know, a photographer, but a person who had, who, there was a great amount of love for him.
1: There was, I mean, I'm on this WhatsApp group with his friends and uh, it is the most multicultural thing you could ever imagine. And there's about 90 people on it. I don't think I'd have 90 or 100 people that liked me that much that they'd keep in touch and send up, you know they're all putting up photographs they took of them and little memories and this that and the other uh so that's quite nice but yeah he'd loads of friends all over the world and every job he went on um and just to say there was some really uh upsetting distressing coverage of ross's death in the u.s media very graphic unnecessary details i would have thought but like for me, Ross was somebody, everyone he approached, everyone he worked with, he showed them massive respect. And, you know, I would have thought it was nice if the media showed him respect in his death. He made friends absolutely everywhere. But, do you know, I'm always thinking about the amount of, I said at the beginning, the amount of times which he certainly fed me. He just seemed to be constantly feeding me um, in a good way. But no. uh, I think we, even the first night we came back here after the Regency, we were yeah. exhausted. we have done the podcast, everything. The next thing, this absolutely beautiful pie meal appears in the kitchen.
2: Yeah, that's exactly.
1: organized. Yeah,
2: and he was he was great uh, because I remember thinking after that Regency, thinking, "What in God's name did we did we say?" Because he, he had the ability to keep you at ease, even as you're filming, like you you would genuinely forget and laugh along, you know. So.
1: But do you remember the day I thought this was very funny? Well, actually, he loved this piece of footage himself, but he was filming while we were doing a podcast and we'd finished and we both made a very dramatic exit of the room because we were just so sort of slightly haphazard, I suppose, but a very dramatic exit. And he kept filming the door. Yeah. And the next thing we both sort of belted back in, kind of I'd forgotten my entire handbag and everything. <laughs> you, you... <laughs> Your wallet was on the table and everything. And he said, I just, I knew that was going to happen. I just (laughs) thought. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. um, But look, really sad and tragic. And I just wanted to repost this interview with him because um, I think maybe people can hear how gentle he was, how incredible at his trade he was, and how deeply connected he was to Ballymun. No matter where he traveled in the world, he always wanted to come home. And to, you know, tell a story or to to find the people to tell the stories. Yep. So we'll have a listen. We'll have a listen to that now. Ross, Halloween of two thousand and five. You're going through Dublin on your way home, I presume, being a northsider. And uh, what happened?
0: You know, I was in Dublin and in Ireland, really trying to discover what was calling my attention photographically and, and discovered my pathway as a photographer, I think. And uh, having been abroad for a couple of years, I was very uh, taken aback by this sort of Celtic tiger atmosphere in Ireland and felt that I hadn't really engaged with my Irish identity. And now that I was sort of growing into my practice as a photographer, I was really trying to capture what I felt was disappearing. You you
1: were living at this stage in Williamsburg, were you, in New York?
0: I had travelled over to America after I finished college to work in a production company there. I had studied film. I was really trying to get my life as a filmmaker started and then obviously was broke. New York uh, chewed me up and spat me back out and I was uh, back in Dublin trying to figure out what the next steps were and Mm. had really begun this sort of passionate uh, photography practice, taking pictures, processing negatives, you know, and trying to follow in the footsteps of street photographers that I really admired and respected. And I uh, was trying to just get a project together, you know, go down the rabbit hole in Ireland and was traveling to, you know, Donegal, to slow to sort of capture like this sort of days of being wild, these Irish pubs, traditions places, you know, I did some work up in Fatima Mansions before that was knocked down, Uh, and just really rolling around with my camera. Uh, I had studied in DCU, so I used to get the 17A bus past Ballymun all the time, not really thinking it was a place that I would create work in, but when Halloween came about, I knew it would be a good place to go for bonfires, for reverie, for... uh, you know, all of those traditions for bangers, rockets, and air bombs. I, yeah, I don't know yeah. what to tell you. Um, and I went there and actually the, the big towers were coming down and they had a big community event there with an Elvis impersonator abseiling down the tower. You know, there was a lot of people sitting on couches in front of the blocks with their bonfires going. And I was photographing one of these bonfires and a young man came up to me and said, you know, if you want to see what's really going on, follow me. And we were sort of talking to each other on the way. And we came around to one of the blocks in Balcurus. And, you know, there was just a group of young guys hanging out there with a a banger car that they were driving up and down outside the blocks doing some handbreakers. And, uh, you know, I was taking some pictures and explaining who I was. And they were like you know, suspicious, but accepting, you know, I was giving them my camera to take some pictures. Uh I had a very old SLR camera with film in it, you know, and always with a wide angle lens. So it's not like you can hide in the shadows. And, and, and who
1: was the young guy who'd approached you? What kind of age was he? Uh
0: We were trying to figure that out. I think he was 16 at the time. Um... And there was a sort of range of age groups. There was different groups. There was obviously a lot of kids around because of the Mm. bonfires and the fancy dress. And, you know, this iconic picture I have of this, like, young silhouette in front of a fire with these devil horns was that same night. Uh, Half of the blocks were abandoned. You know, the guys had a ladder to get into one of the empty flats and Mm. some of the images of them, like, in midair, jumping up and down. And, you know, after a couple of hours, it was kind of like... We'd sort of all met each other and they were like...
1: You were you part know. of the... No,
0: not not at all. In fact, they were kind of like, great to meet you, but, you know, don't hang around too long. Uh, did you
1: think at any point when he was saying, did you want to come and see what's really going on, that you were going to get robbed for your camera?
0: No, I didn't. So I don't think there was... Uh, yeah, this guy just seemed like a really nice kid and, you know... He was
1: curious what you were doing
0: there. He was curious and I was curious. We obviously found each other's mutual curiosity. Why anyone would tell me to come up with a camera uh, especially was kind of strange. But I think we were talking and he was like, you know, this will be fun for you. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry about it. So there was some sort of trust happening there at the get-go. And I think it was obviously a very exciting night as a photographer for me to see like, you know, Mm. cars on fire, bonfires. There was something interesting about the atmosphere and... There was a lot of questions. There was a lot of like masculine energy, you know, Brio and youth and all that sort of stuff. And I think I got my chemicals together and processed the films and was like, this is incredible, you know? And then went to the mini lab and the Tesco's in Clare Hall to make some like small prints. And the next week, I think I went back up to the same block. There was nobody there. Right. And I was just hanging around for a few hours and then eventually like a couple of the guys I'd met the week before or not even the same bunch of lads that I had remembered. But I had all these prints and uh, sort of just sat there hanging out and giving the guys some prints that I had made.
1: That's like a kind of like a a thing of friendship, isn't it? When you can give people pictures or when you used to print them out and you could give them over your... It's yeah,
0: like, and absolutely. And the conversation today is obviously all about reciprocity and consent mm-hmm. and collaboration, and maybe it wasn't so much there. And, you know, obviously, that's something that's at the forefront of my mind now that these pictures are collected in a book, you know. Uh, these
1: because these pictures are collected in a book uh, called Joyrider and it wasn't something that was created in one night in Ballymun. You were went back and back and back over a six year period we we'll just go back and have a little look at, you know, what you were coming into there in Ballymun in 2005. It was, of course, built or certainly um, the idea of Ballymun came up in the 60s when there was a lot of people living in tenements. They were unsafe. They hadn't got running water and electricity. And they were built in seven towers and then 19 eight storey blocks and 10 4 four-storey blocks. And they were to be the new big part of Dublin, weren't they? I mean, we've both found stories from Ballymun and people would tell you they were all excited to move in. A lot of people were excited to move into Ballymun. They, there was lots of things about those flats that was amazing. But there was a vision that never came off. The facilities around Ballymun were never built and too many people were put in there with no employment and obviously then in the late 70s early 80s heroin came in and it was catastrophic on the area Um, so by the time you are rattling up with your camera we're into the second generation really of that those people that were destroyed by that by that heroin epidemic so what are you seeing when you get there
0: well yeah it's a great History of Ballymun and and the poet and playwright Dermot Bulger wrote to me once with the best line about Ballymun. You know, fifteen stories high and a million stories deep, and it resonates so much. I don't think, honestly, I was really aware uh, that heroin in Dublin was still such a thing. You know, I think I grew up. In the eighties and in the eighties and early nineties, obviously, was very aware that there was this huge heroin problem in Ireland, and would consider myself part of the train spotting generation. Of so, you know, that was my coming of age movie in a way for me. So by two thousand and five six, it wasn't really on my radar that there was still such a hard drugs problem in Dublin. Again, this was the period of the Celtic Tiger, and you know, for me, Ireland was just a wash with. Cocaine, I would have said, you know, that was really when this sort of nouveau riche, can't stop partying, you know, atmosphere was prevalent in Ireland, I think. Um, And very gradually, you know, it started to be revealed to me that Ballymun was still a real hub for for drugs and drug dealing, Um, but not necessarily initially when I met the group of guys that I was photographing, you know. That sort of seemed to grow over the time that I was working there and came to sort of see these empty blocks uh, as a kind of hub for drug trafficking. You know, people like Peter McVerry were still very active in the community, running rehab centers sometimes with dealers outside his door as he was trying to bring addicts in and treat them. And, you know, his work is incredible, obviously. But it was a kind of slow reveal to me Mm -hmm. and still shocking to me how many people in Ireland are still locked in that cycle, you know. What's the response to it, I suppose, is the question, you know. Are we locking up street-level dealers? Are they really the bad guys here? You know, like, to me, this is, like, such low-hanging fruit that we're criminalizing these young men who are being sucked into, like, really small-time drug dealing and the sort of activities that I photographed in the book, to me, are transgressive rather than, like... uh they're not the perpetrators of the sort of organisation of of this drugs transshipment in Ireland. So like, that would be the question. So tell us
1: about this group of teenagers Mm. and um, how did they, what did they start to reveal and and how long did it take for them to sort of begin to trust you? Did you, you say you weren't really part of their pack in the beginning. Did you become that?
0: Yeah, you know, the young man I met uh, at the start of that adventure really became like a friend, you know, and this group of guys became friends. And I think it was this act of joyriding and this sort of Mad Max atmosphere that was out there, you know. It's one of these places as a documentarian. It's very difficult to chase people who are on the move and make a film about them or follow them as a photographer. It's very difficult to track a moving target in a way, you know. And of all the work I've done, the most successful projects have been when you really connect with someone who's in a place that, you know, something is going to, someone's going to be there, something might happen, whether that's beekeepers, whether that's joyriders, whether that's opium producers in Mexico, you know, if someone's in a fixed location, there's a world there that's surrounded. And I think I was just drawn to this sort of backdrop of these empty blocks, these cars, and this sort of wildness that I had been looking for originally. You know, I don't think I was really sort of zeroed in on this transition, this coming of age story that this group was going through. This is a friend group who remain close friends today and have largely grown up and said, that's not a life for me. Mm. You know, I want to be a productive member of society. They've met wives and partners who have restructured their lives into family men and largely I'm super proud of all of them, you know. Uh, And I think that particular moment in time, you know, you sort of say this is a product of the environment. So, you know, this book is very much for me reflecting on the government structure. You know, you talked about this utopian society, this Le Corbusier future city that Ballymun was supposed to be. And, you know, very quickly you see, like you said, this lack of infrastructure, this lack of amenities, you know, the promises that were made and not kept. And in fact, when you look at the history of Ballymun, you see the government then came up with these ideas like the surrender grant, where people were given money to move out of their home and more vulnerable populations were moved in from outside Ballymun. That to me is a really shocking kind of indictment of what was happening with social housing out there to say, okay, this place is lost to us. Let's place other people who are lost in that environment knowing that things would not improve, you know,
1: So these kids would have been born in the late 80s, early 90s, and they really would have been, you know, the second generation. So their parents may have been born in Ballymun in those towers. So they would have maybe had grandparents who came in when those towers were first built with all their hopes and dreams. So they were kind of the generation that was failed that you were seeing coming into their teenage years, 16, 17, and they were heading towards adulthood. And what was their life like and how different was it, I suppose, maybe from yours?
0: Good point, yeah. I mean, I'm just a very middle class person, you know. I was so fortunate in the upbringing I had to have been given the freedom to go to college and sort of pursue my evolving hopes as a photographer, as a filmmaker, you know. Uh, My mother's Scottish and I didn't really grow up as a Catholic in Ireland, which was kind of an outlier place to be. uh, My father's from a very working class part of Limerick and has the kind of, you know, working class guy done good story, you know. So uh, we didn't share a lot of background in that sense, but, you know, we shared each other's uh, mutual appreciation, I would say. And I think in the work I do as a documentarian, you know, it's just sort of total acceptance. You're just sort of like, yeah, I like you, you know, we can share space together. You know, you want people to be the narrators of their own story.
1: So it's like you're stepping in amongst them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this work evolved over a very long period of time because I never pushed an agenda. Uh, there's a very famous photographer called Eugene Richards who documented the crack epidemic in New York in a book called Cocaine Blue, Cocaine True. Incredible work, work that I never understood how a photographer could be so close to people making pictures. A huge inspiration, I used to look at his pictures before going to Ballymun. And people often ask him, how do you make this work? You know, And he, the answer is always, you just have to be very good at hanging out that's your primary job <laughs> you know and little by little things would happen you know I would go to Balimon and meet this group of guys and every time almost I would be there the response would be you want to see what you missed yesterday it was mental you know <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, <I'm laughs> so the,
0: there's like at some points it was Frustrating. I would be like, I should just move into one of these empty flats for a month. And I would see, Did like, you consider that? I did, of course, yeah. And it was like, you know, that would be the thing to do. And there was always a fine line, you know. There's a whole massive network of people who aren't in any of these pictures who mm-hmm. I know as well as the people who are in the pictures, you know, who became people that were more comfortable being photographed or understood what I was doing, you know, understood my curiosity and accepted that and and this sort of, you know, yeah, this practice we had And what does life
1: look like for them in in Ballymun at that point? And we can see them, see it through your pictures. There's Mm. drug dealing, there's joyriding, obviously. The flats are vacating. Some of them, have they started demolishing?
0: Yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it looks grim. There's a grimness to it, but at the same time you can see the sort of the fun uh, that they're having because they are having a bit of crack, aren't they?
0: They are. And, you know, I see a lot of these acts that as flight, as this sense of freedom, as this sort of, you know, reclaiming of the space in a way. You know, these are places that they grew up in and suddenly they have access to the whole thing. You know, uh, like I say, these places were left to the end game and suddenly... This is a group of young guys who are saying, okay, this is ours now. You know, we're taking this back. Uh, there was guys out there who would climb the outside balconies all the way to the roof. You know, you have guys who got their hands on, like, industrial saws from the nearby building sites and they were able to break into whatever flats. And, you know, they were there. The whole block was their living room at a certain point, you know. And and then if they got bored of it, they could burn it or destroy it. You know, it was... Uh, It was, yeah, a real sense of freedom. And I think as the book has come together, this resonates into Irish society now. We're in the midst of this massive housing crisis and the cyclical failure of the government in Ballymun related to housing is now kind of writ large nationwide. Everyone wants a sense of place now. Everyone wants a home. Everyone wants to feel free in their home, in their place. And there's a massive issue in governmental policy. You know, we're building all these houses or hotels or whatever now. And most of us can sense that we're going down the same path again somehow, Mm -hmm. you know? So I felt like bringing the book together, there was only ever 20 or 25 pictures published, you know, in the New York Times and. Argentina and Chile and Brazil and Russia, these pictures sort of resonated around the world when they were first published, but only ever these kind of iconic pictures of Mm. cars on fire and this sort of low-level criminality happening. But as the book came together, it became very much about this image that's in the book now, don't be using us to get new houses. And then you sort of see that as a throw into this you know okay this environmental project you know this psychogeographic you know what happens when you have an environment like this what's the product of that environment and that became really the challenge of the book
1: how many pictures did you put in the book
0: i think there's 62 altogether about but 120 pages
1: still the pictures from that first night
0: Still the pictures from the first night, yeah. They became the, like, bedrock of it, you know. Uh, And maybe that says something about my own excitement as a photographer, you know. Just to sort of see those cinematic images, like, to try and, you know, be allegorical with this work. You know, you're seeing pictures that are documentary pictures. They happen in front of the camera, but also they're, like, exploding out of the frame, you know. There's, like, these uh, brilliant compositions and brilliant moments and, like the energy that's coursing through those pictures is palpable, you know.
1: And what sort of, um, I mean, there's some, certainly some of the pictures I've seen involved them cutting up cocaine and maybe making up deals and stuff. Was there a lot of drug dealing you were seeing out there or was that something that was just going on as a normal thing? Nobody would look twice at it.
0: Very much in the background, I think, you know, and then over a long, long period of time, I was just very blissfully ignorant about it, you know. I think drug dealing at the street level like that happens in handshakes and happens in, you know, hands going into pockets and rapid exchanges and flashes, you know. It's not like you're seeing, you know, cars coming in full of... I don't know what the image would be from a movie that people can relate to who are listening to this. But I think, you know, drug dealing for anyone... Whether you're a, an addict or whether you're going out to a club on the weekend is very much like a quick handoff and away you go. You know, no one wants to linger and be like, here's all the drugs. Over time, I came to realize that crack cocaine was becoming a a thing in Ireland. Methamphetamine was becoming a thing in Ireland. Heroin obviously was there. And I think most of the people who were in Ballymun on hard drugs at that time We're just struggling, you know. Mm. I think that transition from heroin where people can maybe, you know, fix a couple of times a day to crack cocaine where you need to smoke like 30 rocks a day. You know, you can go and be smoking rocks every hour, you know. Mm. It's like a kind of dealer's uh, candy store, crack cocaine. Um, And then the mix of all those things as well, you know. So... I don't think I was ever in there with my camera trying to be like, this is sensationalist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And obviously there was still this car culture happening in the background. So it was a real mix. And I think I thought a certain reluctance, honestly, when there was this like drug storyline coming. You know, some of these blocks were shooting galleries at the time. I had been to Afghanistan and, you know, being in opium fields, seeing, you know, tons and tons of heroin and precursor and everything being burned. I'd been in shooting galleries in Kabul with thousands of heroin addicts fixing. And there was almost this reluctance to sort of uh, be a voyeur to that side of things. You know, these young guys were supplying people with drugs every day. It was happening. There's needles in arms. There's lives being destroyed. I could see, you know beautiful, fresh-faced people coming to these blocks. And a year later, I'd meet them and you could see them in the grip of addiction, you know. And there's a tragedy to that that I don't know if I wanted to really uh, focus my work on as a photographer or a filmmaker. you probably
1: get sucked in just to that.
0: You know, as a photographer or a filmmaker, you want to cover everything and have the option afterwards. And I think I began self-editing in a way to not necessarily focus on that. I knew what that looked like, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel like that was what this project was about. Uh, I was still waiting to get a shot of a car in midair flying off the block rather than seeing Mm -hmm. someone putting Mm -hmm. a needle in their arm, you know. That was something I felt like wasn't out there in the photographic world or in this world of the empathetic photo documentarian. You so know.
1: it was different for you in a way you wanted to show that this place had become their playground, this group you were hanging around with and how they were using the the buildings and the architecture as, as like, you know, climbing up the side of it and all this sort of, that this was their norm. Mm. These were obviously a group of guys that were going to go somewhere in life though, weren't they?
0: Very much so. You know, I think just the attitude and the sort of brio that I felt them, and having known them all for 15 years now, you know, I think they're very much looking back on this moment in time saying, I'm so glad that wasn't my life, that I found a turning point and that I was motivated to get out of that game and, and you know, That's still happening somewhere everywhere in the world. You know, these pictures resonate around the world because that moment in time is happening right now somewhere, you know. So people relate to that moment in youth culture in a way. And the pictures became kind of more recognized as youth culture, sort of street culture pictures than they did Mm -hmm. as hard reportage. You know, they're not news photographs. They're not an expose. They're not a treatise on drugs and and drug dealing they're like this sort of mix of relatable youth culture and that moment in time
1: and of course the blocks are completely gone now and what's out there in Ballymun is um home to many and just a very different looking place isn't it if anybody who's knew Ballymun before and now it's 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 just like it's on a different planet nearly
0: it's very unusual to go through there and and think about that roundabout and and the towers and just the beauty of the place in a way, the harsh beauty of it, but just those lines of those long, long blocks and the balconies and the geometry of the place. Um, you know, I got dizzy editing these pictures, looking at the balconies and in black and white, especially the, the lines of the buildings do have that raw beauty and that community. You know, you've documented all these stories yourself of this open door, mm universe that existed in Ballymun, anyone's kids not coming home for dinner, but someone knowing where they, where they were getting fed. The nostalgia, you know, I returned after this project kind of wrapped up or kind of during and, and began a film project documenting women's stories in Ballymun and and this sense that I had not done service to the women and the domestic lives and those narratives and very much tried to focus on the spaces. So I came to sort of love those spaces myself, you know. I was breaking into those blocks for many years as they were being torn down to photograph an empty living room to find a scrap of someone's photographs that were Mm -hmm. discarded, you know. So evocative and the social value that those photographs have now have not been seen yet, you know. This is the first phase uh, of this work that I continued to make in Ballymun. And I have to acknowledge that I'm a total outsider in Ballymun. You know, I'm not from there. Joyrider is a project that's very much a self-contained vision. It's not a project that's about Ballymun, even though it's set in Ballymun. I'm not trying to say this is what this community represents. And that's very important to state clearly. Now in 2021, you know, what can I do with and for the community in Ballymun with my art practice, with my photography that represents what this community became now, what it is today, you know. um, As a photographer, you're always living in the present moment. You know, the reality you're presented with is what you have to work with. Mm. There's no past or future when you're, like, bringing the camera to your eye. It's just what there is. So it continues to be a fascinating community. And uh, the, what's um, changed? during
1: that time and after you've had the most incredible career. I don't know whether as you say you've people are going, Oh, look at you, but you've had an amazing career. Um you've been you've lived in Mexico for five years, you've been to Afghanistan, you've won numerous awards. Um I'm currently watching your series The Trade, which kept me up very late last night, (laughs) uh, is incredible, absolutely amazing. And the access you have in that case to people being smuggled across borders and a real eye opener really of exactly how much a commodity a human being is in parts of the world and sort of an eye opener as well to how this sounds very cliched, but how lucky we are to live in a country like Ireland. We just forget it. We seem to moan and complain an awful lot, but when you look outside and into Central America and some of these countries are just, I mean, human life is so harsh. Like, did your experience in Ballymun help you as you sort of went out into the wide world and into conflict zones and with your photography and your 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 film work? Did it help you fit in with others and
0: absolutely I think you know that first night, as I mentioned at the start, I was really still formulating what I was about uh, as a photographer and working in Ballymun and knowing that these projects could come to fruition certainly uh, gave me the confidence to go out into the world, into more and more adventurous places and seek stories. You know, I had friends who we're working very much in the traditional photojournalism space that were making that leap into conflict photography, into embedding in Afghanistan, into many different news-related worlds. And I think this sort of project space that I had developed with Joyrider as like being a documentarian, but also trying to build an aesthetic world that an audience could relate to, that was contemporary but not news, that was long-term... Uh, projects, you know, uh, working in Ballymun absolutely gave me uh, that foundation, you know, that sensibility was defined there. And I tried to bring that out into the world to say, okay, I can work in a place like Mexico and try and build my own narrative, not rely on what's happening in the news events and and stay around. You know, there's value in the long term, You can go back to places and the relationships are deeper and the projects become something else. Uh, If you go to somewhere and cover a news event, that's great too. You know, certainly covering the revolution in Ukraine, you know, working on news-related stories for publications like Time magazine or the New York Times magazine, you know, you have to build that into your toolbox to understand what an editor needs, to understand what a producer wants. Um so, yeah, on a professional practice level, Ballymun mm. was the, the bedrock in a way.
1: And on the ground, I read something that I'm familiar with myself is to try, try never to show any class of shock, no matter what is going on around you. It's so true. Um, did you have to do that a lot in Ballymun or did you find doing that much more so when you went into these other conflict zones?
0: Yeah, I think... Less so in Ballymun, I think, you know, when you're dealing with acute poverty in people's spaces in Central America and Africa and South Sudan, you know, maybe in South Sudan somebody has one pass and a bowl of beans and they're inviting you into their home to share that with you. And that's a beautiful experience, you know. So total acceptance is always something that's a given and, you know, respecting people and their environments is also, you know, paramount. People's decorations, people's possessions, the pride they take in that. Uh, Many people, you know, in a ghettoized area, in a slum, on the outskirts of Honduras, you you can see the freshly swept floor when you're walking into the living room, you know, and you become adept at being someone who's comfortable in the living room. And then can bring the camera into that space once you feel there's trust. And in a way you're guiding that trust relationship then because people are deeply uncomfortable (laughs) here. you're some guy who's in their living room with a camera all of a sudden (laughs) and you have to be the one to say, I've been here before. This is going to be okay. How do you put people at ease? How do you let people tell their story but also understand that they have to be the narrator of their story when they're uncomfortable doing that? You know, those transition moments of saying, you know, I'm going to be able to do that. Trust me. And a lot of that's implicit. You're never saying that to people, but it's, I don't know what it is, honestly. Mm. Maybe it's your body language. Maybe it's your curiosity. Maybe it's you looking people in the eye. I don't really know. It's like all of those little years and years of doing that. It's probably
1: sitting down and eating those beans out of that. Oh, of
0: course. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Never refuse anything and always... Just, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's so important. You couldn't work in that environment that you do without that. Um, Joyrider is an absolutely beautiful book and it's available on your website, rossmcdonald.com. But just tell me about the, and I'm going to let you describe the names, et cetera, of all these various awards you got. You've got, you've just received an Emmy for The Trade, which is what I'm watching and is available on Sky Documentaries. We think... To see, and that's about um, people being, you know, desperate to leave their countries and to get over borders into the States and Mexico. But what's going on in Dublin here for you?
0: Right now, we have an exhibition up in the Gallery of Photography in Dublin. Um, it's part of an artist award called the Pre Pictet. It's the world's foremost photographic prize that's very much focused on the environment and sustainability. Every two years, they have a theme cycle where 12 artists are shortlisted for the Pre-Pictet Award and they choose a theme. Over 600 photographers usually apply through 300 curators, nominators, book editors, people involved in the art photography world. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the shortlisted artists for a series that I made in Afghanistan. Uh, The series is uh, kind of typographies, I would call them. It's a series of images that I found in a hospital in Jalalabad of prosthetic limbs that people in the villages who'd lost legs in Afghanistan from landmines, from generations of conflict uh, and had so few resources that they basically made their own prosthetic legs. Uh, to get by in life. And after many years of using these legs, they eventually traveled to this hospital, an orthopedic hospital in Jalalabad, where they were fitted for a proper prosthetic leg that fitted them. And the doctors in this hospital kept these handmade objects and created a gallery of them hanging on the hospital walls. One of these limbs apparently is even made from the tube of a fired RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, some of them are made out of pieces of wood. Some of them are hand painted for children. Some of them are like lumps of metal and leather and old flip flops that have been adapted as their, as their fake leg, basically, you know. Um, and I heard about these legs while I was working in this hospital in the ICRC in Kabul. One of the staff there while I was photographing, all of the staff members are amputees in the ICRC hospital in Kabul. Uh, So all of them have shared this experience of losing a limb and fit these patients who come in for for a new leg or arm. And one of them mentioned these improvised limbs to me. And a couple of days later, I traveled there with my producer and fixer, Kareem Sharifi, who was recently granted asylum in Ireland after the Taliban uh, took over the country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that exhibition is up just now. There's some wonderful work by another Irish photographer, Ivor Prickett from Mosul. He covered the uh, fall of the Caliphate uh, by ISIS. Uh, Joanna Shomali was eventually awarded the Prix pictet for work she did after a terrorist attack in Ajiban, the capital of Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, there's another photographer, Gideon Mendel, who covered the revolutions in South Africa. Uh, overall, I would say it's a very Super diverse exhibition. and incredible exhibition mm. to check out in Meeting House Square in Tumble Bar.
1: And the book Joyrider is for sale there as well as on the Yes, website. please
0: come and buy the book That's in the right bookshop. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have to just go and see the exhibition now. But I mean, amazing work. Look, absolutely fantastic. And amazing that you've done all that and yet you're still drawn back to your hometown yeah and to your maybe your adopted hometown of Ballymun
0: I hope so well you know to anyone listening from Ballymun please get in touch tell us your stories
1: Ross MacDonald thank you very much thank you you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.